The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Ask any Civil War soldier what unit he belonged to, and the most likely answer would be to name his regiment, the 24th Michigan, 11th Mississippi, 54th Massachusetts. A few might name the brigade, the Stonewall Brigade, the Iron Brigade. But Rarely would soldiers think of their largest military unit, the Corps, several divisions organized together, in part because so little has been written about the Corps as a Civil War unit. That changes today with a new book, Defeating Lee, A History of the Second Corps, Army of the Potomac, by Lawrence A. Kreiser, Jr. We'll talk with him today about the most famous Corps in the Army of the Potomac, on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful Friday afternoon in the spring of May 2012 from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina home of Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters, but not related to the institution, not speaking for East Carolina University or its other constituent members of the UNC system or the state government or anything else here in North Carolina, just for ourselves, and I know our guest today will likewise speak for himself as we talk about the Civil War. The uh, there's a fair amount of, oh, let's not talk politics, let's talk about uh, history. There's uh, a lot of interesting material coming out about uh, Civil War history. We'll be talking with more authors in the days and weeks ahead. Next week, Thomas uh, Sabatki will join us to discuss uh, more moral issues, morality of the war, and other big picture questions. Uh, he's written for North and South Magazine on this topic. 
We'll take a week off for the Memorial Day weekend. Uh, yesterday was Confederate Memorial Day in North and South Carolina, but uh, that's not the, the National Memorial Day, which we'll recognize later. So there, there will not be a show that weekend. That's the, uh, what is that, the 25th. Uh, on May 29th, I will be speaking to the Israel B. Richardson Civil War Roundtable in Rochester, Michigan, if anyone is up that way. Uh, please drop in. Uh, I'm sure they'd be happy to have new folks uh, coming by. Likewise, on June 11th, uh, I'll be at the Civil War Roundtable in Raleigh, North Carolina, talking with them. And uh, again, look forward to seeing any listeners to Civil War Talk Radio. And uh, let's see, other uh, appearances. Uh, what else do we have? Then uh, June 1, Keith Erickson will join us talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, a historical look, or look at the history of Lincoln in a, a new light. Mark Dunkelman will be with us on June 8th the, uh, to talk about Sherman's March, and particularly some particular Union regiments in that experience. So lots of interesting things coming up, plus those appearances in Raleigh and in Rochester, Michigan. Last night I spoke with a group here in Greenville, North Carolina, the uh, local uh, chapter of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. I've spoken to the SCV group in Kinston, North Carolina, not too far from here a while back. This is my first chance to meet with the Greenville group, and uh, it was a very pleasant evening. enjoyed talking with them. Uh, some people who know a great deal uh, about the Civil War. Uh, some of them would insist that we call it the war between the states, but but no matter. The uh, the the thing about when one gets invited to speak to an SCV chapter is you have to find a way to determine in advance, in some some polite fashion if it is one of the chapters that is primarily motivated by an interest in history and heritage and the events of 1861-65, or if it is one that has been uh, sort of hijacked for contemporary political purposes and espouses a strong uh, libertarian uh, slash conservative slash reactionary uh, anti-government sort of political view that is is in theory modeled on some of the ideas of what these, these members think the Confederacy was about, but are, are in fact not quite related to that. Um, I'm happy to say the groups I've spoken to seem to be more history-oriented than, than in turning historical events to contemporary political usage. And uh, we last night we talked about Lincoln, we talked about the Western Theater, we talked about various... Uh, Civil War era topics, and and I learned something, and I hope they learned something too. The other thing that comes up when one speaks to a an SCV chapter is the uh, is not knowing quite what the ceremony is going to involve. Uh, in in uh, at, at Kinston, they called the roll before the meeting and naming the ancestors for which the members answered in their place with the, the fate of the, the individual where they if they died in battle which was dramatic and, and uh, moving in its way 
uh, last night the Greenville chapter began with the Pledge of Allegiance, which I, of course, was happy to join in, uh, pledging to the flag. And then, but they said it was the Pledge to the Flags, and not knowing what would come next, I remained standing. Then there was a Pledge to the North Carolina flag, and I thought, well, I've lived and worked in five different states in my career. If I just go pledging promiscuously to the flag of each state, some sort of you know, state whore pledge monger, I'd, I'd be just giving my loyalty to wherever I happen to hang my hat. That doesn't seem right. So I maintained a sort of respectful silence. Also, I had no idea there was a pledge to the North Carolina flag, and I didn't know the words, so I didn't say anything. And then they followed with a pledge to the uh, the Confederate national flag, which uh, listeners to this show will will not be surprised to know that I would not be eager to join in regarding it more as a flag of, of treason than than of uh, 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 something to, to pledge contemporary allegiance to. I, I respect the the history and heritage it represents, but not its values, and. Yet, what does one do in this situation? I ask uh, ask you, uh, listeners. Did it would be rude to to suddenly sit down and, and declare my rejection of my host's values. The the guest host relationship uh, requires more more than that. So I, I went from a respectful silence to a disrespectful silence. But I don't think outwardly there was any noticeable difference. Uh, just inwardly, I was thinking. Uh, North Carolina flag. If, if I'd known there was a pledge, I guess I could have learned it. But, but the, the the flag that fought against the United States flag, I'm not pledging allegiance to that uh, in this or any other lifetime. Still, it was a pleasant evening, uh, and I, I would be happy to speak to them again, knowing this time what to expect when the pledge comes. I could think about my reaction in advance. Well, enough about uh, contemporary. Uh, uh, groups and how they, they host various things dealing with the Civil War. Uh, let me remind listeners, as always, if you can send a contribution of $20 this way toward the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, you can get a copy of All for the Regiment or Did Lincoln Own Slaves? We're starting to run low on copies of All for the Regiment here at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. So if uh, so maybe by next season we'll have to discontinue that offer or change the amount because uh, the copies will have will have vanished. So if you're interested in getting one, uh, you might want to take advantage of that fairly soon. You can do that from the website impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, it is the Civil War Talk Radio information website. It has all the past shows or links to them and information about upcoming shows and a link It'll let you donate to CivilWarTR at AOL.com using PayPal. So, business taken care of. Let's move ahead and talk uh, today about a a book that looks at an element of the war strangely overlooked. And and for all the tens of thousands of books on the war, uh, the challenge of finding something new to write about is always there. and, And... Yet somehow, uh, uh, month after month, something new shows up that you read it and think, why hasn't anyone really addressed this before? This is, this is a new way to think about things. And that's what we have here uh, this week, a history, a unit history of the Second Corps, Army of the Potomac. 
the there are plenty of regimental histories. Uh, anyone listening to this show has read uh, one or maybe a few or maybe a lot of regimental histories, but not very many about other organizations, uh, and certainly not many at the core level. So uh, we'll have to ask uh, right from the start why that is. And the person we'll ask is the book's author, Lawrence A. Kreiser, Jr. Uh, Dr. Kreiser, are you there? I am here, and I thank you very much for inviting me. Well, delighted to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Um, you and I have not met in person, but uh, uh, please call me right. Jerry. Uh, do you go by Larry? Is that oh, okay? Oh, I, I go by Larry. Yes, please. Great. Um, now, looking at the, the dust jacket uh, of this book, first thing I noticed is you teach history at Stillman College in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, how did you come to Stillman, and, and how did you come to teaching Civil War? Yes, I, well, I did my Ph.D. work at the University of Alabama. It's also in Tuscaloosa, and it's only about five minutes away from the, uh, the Stillman campus. But Stillman is uh, a historically black college that was founded in the, um, the late 1870s. And today we have about 1,000 students or 1,100 students, and I'm part of a, a social sciences department, so <laughs> I get to teach the, the Civil War, but also just a whole range of other courses, because there's only one other historian on the, um, the faculty. Uh, so in addition to teaching the Civil War, I teach world history, I teach um, research and writing, I teach history in film. So it's just a wonderful opportunity because I get to teach courses that I, I never thought I'd be teaching when I was in graduate school. Uh, but I confess, sometimes I'm pretty frantically going through the uh, the textbooks or the, the world history books to try to keep ahead of the students. That, that would be a challenge. So with about a 1,000 students, you must get to know students reasonably well. Absolutely, which is a very nice part to it. Now, Stillman, I guess like, many other schools, has a fair amount of attrition from the first year to the second year. Uh, so the, the World History Teach I call it, the World History course I teach is a, a course that all students have to take. So I get to meet most all of the, uh, the incoming students. But then when you get into the upper level courses, we have many fewer students. So we have maybe about um, 15 or, or 20 students in an upper level course. And absolutely, I mean, you get to know them very well. So that's a very enjoyable part of the, the work. It, uh, I was talking with, uh, what was his name, uh, Frank Smith, uh, who is the director of an African-American monument to the United States Colored Troops in All Washington, right, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gave a talk here a few weeks ago. Oh, neat, Okay. And he and I were, I, I was asking him about what I had encountered when I worked in a museum, which was that it was difficult to, to get a large number of African-American visitors to a Civil War or Abraham Lincoln Museum. Yeah. There was a sense that, that Lincoln and, and the Civil War are not, uh, are, 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 are white history more than black history. So I, teaching you, at a historically black college, what, what do your undergraduates think? You're exactly right. I mean, now, I will say, I think in Alabama, people 
generally know at least the, the basic information about the Civil War. So you can mention Antietam, or you can mention Gettysburg, and most people, I think, have an understanding that, that that's a pivotal battle during the Civil War, so that they may not be able to, to place the year, a lot of the particulars, but at least they recognize many of the, the events, many of the leaders. But yes, I mean, when, when I'm teaching the Civil War, and I've spent a lot of time, maybe more time than I, than I a lot to on the, the syllabus, but we probably spend about a third of the course talking about the coming of the war. And I think there, students are pretty familiar with that or are especially interested in it. But yes, when we get to 1861, 1865, they know some of the, the basic details, but a lot of that, a lot of the rest, they're, they're pretty unfamiliar with. So much so, and this continues to surprise me, that when we talk about African-American soldiers fighting in the Union Army, they're surprised the number of soldiers who did serve in the, the Army. And, you know, I guess I kind of figure that that many of the students might be more familiar with that, but a lot of them are talking about it for the first time. That is interesting that... that uh... Uh, I mean, the movie Glory came out now twenty, right, more, right, more than twenty years ago. Right, I think nineteen eighty nine, and it's funny because I love that movie. That's probably my favorite Civil War movie. But you know, you mm-hmm. mentioned it to the uh, students today, and it might as well have come out, you know, thirty or forty years ago or fifty years ago because none of them have seen it. Uh, so one of the things that we do in my class is watch clips from the movie, and I must say, once they start watching it, the movie has aged very well. So they pretty quickly become absorbed by it. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking I may have to add that to my Civil War class, because there's an assumption, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you could assume a lot of people would have seen it. Right, right. no longer is that the case. Oh, yes. When I ask it to start a class, almost no one has seen it, and many of them, many of the students aren't even familiar with the title. Wow. Well, the... Uh, I guess it's one of the things that makes the topic interesting is that things are always changing. The right, right. Changing. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you about, um, the, the well, well, let's get into this, this book you've written here, Defeating Lee, where you look at the, the second core. And one of the things my students uh, will mention to me is that if they're reading James McPherson or some other account, right. uh, that, you know, battalion, regiment, company, division, corps, brigade. To them, it's all, it all gets mixed up. Um, yes. Now, our listeners to this show will already know the answer, but, but what is an Army Corps? Uh, uh, which is a great, no, I mean, that, that's a very good point that you're making, because when I tell people that I've written on an Army Corps, you just kind of get this glassy-eyed <laughs> look where, you know, <laughs> you know, people will say, so, you know, you're writing about an Army Corps, and I <laughs> you know, no, I'm writing about an Army Corps. So you're right, it's a pretty unfamiliar term to many people. Uh, but an Army Corps is the largest grouping within a Civil War army. So if you're imagining a pyramid and you have the Army on the top, then you'd go down a level to the corps, and then you would go down to divisions and brigades, and then the, the regiments and the, the companies would be at the, the base of the pyramid. But I try to help people by explaining it that it's almost like the American League 
or the National League in baseball, that this is the, the umbrella organization within the, the major leagues, and you're either, you know, your division and your team is in the AL or the NL, but that, that's your organizational framework. And so during the Civil War, uh, the cores that really are going to number anywhere from maybe ten to, to 20,000 soldiers, or maybe low 20,000, uh, those are going to be the, the basic maneuver elements once in battle. So this is how army commanders maneuver and fight their forces by using the um, the Army Corps. The, uh, the United States Army didn't have any corps at the beginning of the Civil War. Right. The, mm-hmm. uh, so so how, did, how did the Second Corps and the other corps that made up the Army of the Potomac come into existence? Yeah, which you, uh, as you know, and your listeners know, the, the, the Union Army as well as the Confederate Army swell very rapidly in numbers. So by the spring of 1862, I think you have about 120,000 soldiers just in the Army of the Potomac, which, which is just an enormous number if you think that, and I think I have this correct, that the largest field, the, I'm sorry, the, the field army that captures Mexico City during the Mexican War I think it's only maybe 13,000 soldiers or 14,000 soldiers. So you're dealing with, you know, just lots and lots and lots of more soldiers. And Americans had organized uh, the Army previously into brigades. Uh, so that's the, the largest battlefield formation during the Civil War. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, until the Civil War. And then in the Civil War, you organized the, the brigades into divisions and then you have 12 divisions during the, uh, the spring of 1862, and there's concern how McClellan or any other army commander is going to handle that many divisions and that many soldiers once it gets into the field. So what they're trying to do is, is streamline command. But then there's also the thought that McClellan, who's a conservative Democrat, is going to try to fight the war the way he wants to fight the war once the army is out into the field. So part of this is if you if you organize divisions into the army corps, you're better streamlining command. But the, the senior officers underneath McClellan either are Republican or supporters of the, the Republican Party. So underneath McClellan, what you get then is a layer of Republican generals. Uh, so that to kind of keep his political ambitions or political influence in check. So you got a few different factors going into the decision to create the Army Corps. But then once you do, it becomes widespread through the Union Army. There's something like, I think, 42 or 43 or 44 Union Army Corps organized by 1865. So each Army eventually has them. We're going to take a short break now. We'll come back and talk about how the Second Corps uh, begins its illustrious career uh, in the Army of the Potomac. We'll find out about this from our guest today. He's Larry Kreiser, author of Defeating Lee. It's a history of the Second Corps. We'll be back with him in a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Larry Kreiser. He's the author of Defeating Lee, A History of the Second Corps, Army of the Potomac. We talked in our first section a little bit about the origins of the the Corps, the formation of all arms, uh, the largest subdivision of a, a field army in the Civil War. The Army of the Potomac was initially divided into four uh, corps at, at, uh, when McClellan took over in 18, uh, late 1861, early 1862. If you, if you don't have that layer of organization, if you just have divisions, that's the next level down, then McClellan would have had 12 divisions to handle, and uh, it's hard to have 12 direct subordinates. Uh, it, it's more than, than can be easily managed, so right. it makes sense to divide up into cores. The, uh, so, uh, uh, so, Larry, you mentioned that the four core commanders were chosen partly out of political uh, motivations. Who was the first commander of the second corps? Uh, yeah, Edwin Sumner is the, the first commander, and he sometimes comes in for a, uh, something of a bad rap today, that, he, that he's too old to take command, uh, that he's too stubborn, you know, he gets focused on something and then it's not very flexible from that idea. But that said, at the time, he makes a perfectly good choice for a core commander. Uh, he's got lots of field experience, so gosh, I think he'd been in the Army since, uh, really since the early 19th century. He'd, he'd seen volunteer soldiers. Uh, fight during the um, the Mexican War. He goes on a, a tour, a military tour of Europe in the 1850s, where he's uh, studying what makes a better army during a war. Do you want volunteer soldiers or do you want conscripts? Uh, and he comes there on the, the side of volunteer soldiers. So I think you know he's he's aggressive. He's used to to working with volunteer soldiers, or he's appreciative the volunteer soldiers with training, make very good wartime soldiers. So, again, 
given given the the, the officers that that Lincoln has to work with in early 1862. I think Sumner makes a very good choice as a corps commander. The the soldiers that make up the the corps. I was interested in in what you did looking at their origins. Uh, I've looked at origins of of uh, another Union army, the Army of the Ohio, right, the right. Western Theater, and. There, I I was struck by the the homogeneity of the individual regiments. How the men all would come from the same community or nearby areas, yeah. and so that doesn't apply typically at a large on a large scale. But you found that that a lot of the regiments of the the Second Corps did share uh, an urban background uh, in yeah, contrast to the rest of the army. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. And uh, to go back to your book, because I yes, I I had forgotten that. I mean, you're, you're right that, uh, you know, you discuss how virtually all of the regiments are coming from the Midwest, that I think, gosh, I mean, you mentioned in the Army of Ohio that, again, there are only a handful of regiments from the Northeast, uh, but once you get to the Army of the Potomac and in the Second Corps, yes, you have a, a very large number of urban soldiers, which doesn't necessarily make the, the Second Corps distinct, because, as you know, the the Northeast is very urbanized by the mid-19th century, uh, so other Army Corps also have a lot of urban soldiers, but what you do get in the Second Corps is you get a large number of ethnic soldiers, so Germans and Irish, and you also get a, a fair amount of regiments coming from Democratic communities, meaning the, the Democratic Party, uh, communities or Democratic households, and I think those are going to be two distinguishing traits to the Second Corps, that, again, you have a large number of ethnic regiments and you have a large number of uh, soldiers who give their political sympathies to the Democratic Party. And that, that is distinct. That, that, that you're fighting a war here that has, obviously, political overtones and... and of course, McClellan will eventually run against Lincoln in 1864 uh, for president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the Second Corps, d- does that affect its fighting ability, do you think, that, that its men are not people who would have voted for Lincoln in 1860? That's, that's a great question. I mean, yes, I, I think they're, they go to war in 1861 to preserve the Union. So there's, there's some suggestion in the, the scholarship that Civil War soldiers are maybe more sympathetic to emancipation than is uh, the government. I don't think that's the case in the Second Corps. I mean, they're, they're there to preserve the Union, and they, uh, they kind of, they come to begrudgingly accept emancipation as a war aim, as a way to, to militarily weaken the Confederacy. But boy, in the post-war, they, they very quickly go back to, we were there to, to preserve the Union, and we also there were there to end slavery. But with that, our job is done. Uh, so any talk about you know trying to achieve equal citizenship for African Americans in the South, it, you know that that just really isn't their concern, or, or that's not their interest. So yes, they're there from start to finish, primarily to preserve the Union. And they're. Uh in the post-war era, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock, who becomes the most famous commander of the Second Corps, eventually runs for president himself. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and 
and not on a platform of, of uh, equal citizenship, certainly. Right, right. Although what's interesting there is you would think that most soldiers would give their, their, their vote to Hancock as their former commander, and you know, there's not a, a whole bunch of evidence as to how soldiers voted after the, the war, but just based on some of their, their letters and their, their speeches, it seems somewhat evenly split. A lot of the, the men do support Hancock, you know, gosh, this is our former commander, you know, we, we are going to give him our vote, but there are, there are others saying, we're simply not going to vote for the Democratic Party, so, you know, Hancock, yes, is our former commander, but we're going to vote for Garfield, or we're going to vote for the, the Republican candidate. It was uh, the, the the slogan "Vote as you shot." They, 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 <laughs> oh, right, absolutely. During the Civil War, yes, in the the eighteen sixty four presidential election. Mm-hmm. Now, look, going back to the beginnings of the the Second Corps, they they fight uh, in the Peninsula uh, campaign. Uh, they're they're engaged at Fair Oaks, uh, and they they have a rather rugged time in the. Uh, uh, in the Seven Days Battles, uh, Glendale right. and mm-hmm. uh, retreating back to the, the the river with McClellan's army. Yeah. But they really, the, the, the story, it seems to me, really begins with the Battle of Antietam, where, where we really see the Second Corps in action uh, right. as a whole unit. Uh, tell our, our listeners a bit about how, how the Second Corps fared in, in that battle. Uh, now that's you're right. I mean that that's the Second Corps is at what kind of the, the most famous spots of the, the battle, the most hallowed spots of the battle, where they're fighting in the West Woods. They're fighting before the sunken road, and eventually they storm the sunken road. But this is where you also get the controversy where Sumner leads one of his divisions, um, Sedgwick's division, into. Uh, essentially an ambush, a Confederate ambush by the West Woods, and the, the division is just literally almost shot to pieces, uh, and then in that time loses contact with the other two divisions, who somewhat then stumble into the, or stumble against the, the sunken road, and just set off a vicious fight for, uh, uh, for some time before regiments from Richardson's division storm into the, the sunken road and eventually carry the position so it, it's, uh, I mean, it's a brutal battle. The, the most casualties in any one day of the war. Yes, you're right. And, you know, I think, you know, Sumner is pretty badly out of sorts after the, the battle, but I think quickly enough recovers. And then goes on to praise some of the units for their hard fighting. And I think here you start to see, yes, yeah, a lot of pride in regiments and brigades. But you're also now, I think, starting to see some references to pride in the Second Corps. Uh, that again, the, the Second Corps is in the thick of the battle. The Second Corps achieves some battlefield success, and people are starting to develop, or soldiers are starting to develop a core identity. And I mention that because you make the point in the Army of Ohio that Buell sometimes praises his soldiers, but he's praising them for having, uh, you know, nicely polished shoes or for marching. <laughs> well, you know, and he's not really making reference to their 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 accomplishments in battle. And so you make the point that you don't really get too much of a sense of army identity because the, the pride is focused in the, the regiment. And I think commanders in the Second Corps 
when they're they're praising soldiers are very much focusing on their their battlefield accomplishments. So again, I, I think you get a sense of of pride serving in the Second Corps that certainly is developing by Antietam and up the autumn of eighteen sixty two. Well, you also show how the the Corps has uh, in, institutional integrity that it it has some leaders who stay with it right. throughout the war and the. The regiments and brigades that constitute the corps, right. uh, more or less, stay in it the whole time. It's, it's not just. Uh, uh, I, I was saying in the, the introduction, I've lived in various states, and so mm-hmm. I, I think of myself as a Michigan man. That's where I'm born and raised, but I might live in any number of other states. Um, right. As opposed to somebody born and raised in one state, where that's all. Right. You, right. You can have a loyalty if, if you stay in the Second Corps your whole military career. You can really identify with it. Yeah, so you're absolutely right, and uh, you know that that's one of the issues that the Army of the Potomac and other Union armies face is that, my gosh, I mean, you're getting a wave of reinforcements at the start of each battle or at the start of each campaign, and you know, my gosh, I mean, how do you integrate new people, you know, a few days or a week before going into to battle? So that's going to prove a challenge through the war. I guess a, a modern-day analogy, this would be as if, I don't know, the, the day before your fall semester starts, if someone tells you, you know, gosh, you have five new faculty members in your department, and you'd be appreciative of the help, but, you know, how do you get them integrated in with the start of classes? So, you know, to go back to the Second Corps, they're always trying to, to, to integrate soldiers into the units. Yeah, it seems they do... Uh, you, you compare how other corps do that. Some would divide up new incoming regiments right, and scatter right. them throughout the brigades, but other t- the second corps seemed to do a particularly good job of, of maintaining I, I the, so. yeah, the integrity. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think they're, what they're trying to do is, yes, I mean, work in the, the, the new regiments, but also to maintain unit cohesion. And what they often do is try to um, to keep regiments new regiments in their own brigades uh, so that you're not disrupting the, the otherwise hard-won cohesion among the, uh, the veteran regiments. So I think they do a, a good job between balancing manpower and unit cohesion. And I'm saying that because sometimes I still read, or oftentimes I still read today, where the, the Army of the Potomac is considered, uh, you know, large but clumsy or, you know, large but ponderous and you know i i don't know i I think they do a better job at integrating new regiments and balancing again manpower demands unit cohesion concerns than they're often given credit for that 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 shows here i think it's uh it is an interesting point the core suffers badly at fredericksburg uh that battle the 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 entire union army of the potomac suffers obviously at Fredericksburg right. sent up up, uh, up the ridge repeatedly and in the aftermath of that battle uh, there's a, you have a poignant scene where Burnside holds a review and the, the men refuse to cheer for him as he right. rides by. even when they're ordered to cheer they, they simply stay silent so you've got loss of officers you've got uh, unpopularity of the high command you've got the bad weather 
you've got the Emancipation Proclamation taking effect at the end of 1862, beginning of 63, mm-hmm. which, as you noted earlier, was not uh, in line necessarily with the war aims of many of these soldiers. Right. So things are really headed toward rock bottom, and that's where we're going to take a break uh, with the, the optimistic hope you can bring the Second Corps back up <laughs> when we return. Uh, we're talking today with Larry Kreiser, author of Defeating Lee, the history of the Second Corps of the Army of the Potomac. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and we'll be back in just a minute with more Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, The Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We're talking today with Larry Kreiser. He's the author of Defeating Lee, a history of the Second Corps, Army of the Potomac. We've been talking about this uh, unit, the the Second Corps, one of initially four uh, different infantry corps in the Army of the Potomac, and its career through the first two years of the war. After the Battle of Fredericksburg uh, in the first months of 1863, morale in the Army and the Corps in particular were at a low ebb. but in a remarkably short time, things turn around. How did the, the Corps get its, get its groove back? In, in that, yeah, that's nice phrasing that. That's a great question. And I, I think what you have here is lots of the, the regimental officers who either been, had been wounded during the campaign of 1862 or were on leave, I guess, during the, the winter of 1862, are starting to return by early 1863 uh, after Fredericksburg. Gosh, surprisingly few office, surprisingly few regiments were under the command of, uh, you know, maybe uh, an officer higher than a company officer, so a, a captain. So now you're starting to get the, the colonels coming back, the lieutenant's colonel coming back, and you have lots of good brigade commanders. So I think you start to get a, a greater sense of of unit discipline, and also this is where 
Hooker decides, Joseph Hooker decides to, to issue the core badges. And those are, you know, those are surprisingly popular, though the soldiers really take to that as a visible symbol, uh, you know, again, of the, the second corps or whatever corps they, they might be in. So, again, I think you have officers returning up, again, uh, the regimental officers returning who otherwise had been absent. Uh, you know, some of the reforms from Hooker coming into play where he issues the core badges. He makes leave more readily available. He, you know, makes sure that the, uh, their monthly pay is getting there on time. The food is better. So I think you have some issues that are distinct to the Second Corps, but also some issues that are, are common throughout the Army of the Potomac. And, and I think it's very clever on, on Hooker's part or whoever his, his graphic designer was that the, the Corps badges are, are simple shapes, just a circle right. for the first core, but for second core, it's it's a, a clover. Uh, yeah, a, a now there, there's you, you're right, and there there's some discussion as to why does Hooker pick the trefoil? So why does he pick you know what what looks awfully like a uh, you know a, a shamrock? And I must say, despite having the last name of Kreiser, I have a fair amount of Irish ancestry, so I was you know, I was you know kind of assuming or hoping that he issued that, you know, in honor of the, the Irish Brigade and other sol- Irish soldiers in the, the Second Corps. But if that's, if, that's, if that's his motivation, he's not putting that to paper, so I didn't find any any um, record of him saying, uh, you know, again, let, let's give all a trefoil to the, the Second Corps to honor the, the Irish soldiers. Plus, you have a lot of soldiers who are, you know, fairly nativist, and I think would not appreciate uh, being, you know, saying we're giving you the, the trefoil as your core badge to honor the ethnic soldiers, the Irish soldiers. I don't know. I think that might have ruffled some feathers. So they're issued, but they're, they're, there's not an official explanation, at least given as to why the Second Corps gets the trefoil or the Eleventh Corps gets the, the crescent moon. But they can each do with it what they want. Uh, uh, they can see it that way if they choose. Oh, I, I, absolutely, yes. And I think, many, yes, you're absolutely right. And many of the soldiers do see it that way. And in the Irish Brigade history that's published after the war, they say, you know, Ma, our, our brigade commander, suggested to Hooker, you know, give us a trap oil to honor the Irish soldiers. Now, the the Corps does not engage substantially at Chancellorsville, and thus it doesn't suffer the decline in morale that some other corps do, particularly the, the 11th Corps, which gets uh, right. smashed by uh, the uh, Stonewall Jackson's flank attack at Chancellorsville. But instead, the 2nd Corps gets through that fairly unscathed, and also uh, at that point, uh, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock becomes the, the commander of the, the unit. Yeah, yeah. So, so you enter the Gettysburg campaign with the Corps really at a peak of efficiency, and it's a good thing because they, they endure some of the hardest fighting. Um, right. Talk about get the Battle of Gettysburg, if you would. Well, again, this is going to be similar to the, the Battle of Antietam, where at Antietam you mentioned the West Woods, it's like the Sunken Road, and there is the Second Corps at Gettysburg. Uh, you mentioned um, Cemetery Ridge, you mentioned the Wheat Field, you mentioned the Angle, and these are all positions either attacked or defended by the Second Corps. Uh, the Second Corps is primarily responsible for defeating Pickett's Charge. And that, you know, again, going back to the students and the knowledge of the Civil War, 
most everyone is familiar with tickets charged at Gettysburg. You know, I guess for many people, that's one of the defining moments of the war. And right in the middle of that is the Second Corps. So they, uh, in all the, the post-mortems, when, when people would try to analyze why why the charge failed, uh, Pickett is famous for saying, uh, you know, they're trying to analyze who made the mistake on the Confederate part. Was it Lee's fault or Longstreet's fault? Or, and Pickett famously said, I think the Yankees had something to do with it. Uh, right, which, which is a great line. And uh, I was born in Detroit, but then was raised in Cleveland. And, you know, I guess through high school, kind of thought that the Civil War was predestined uh, to, to flow the way it did. So, you know, Appomattox, which is simply going to be on April 9th, 1865. But it wasn't until coming to the South that I did my undergraduate work in Virginia and my Ph.D. work in Alabama where I realized there are a lot of people who just have a very, very different view of the Civil War than I have. And, you know, that's what got me interested in the topic is, you know, the ability to analyze why certain things happened. But you're right. You know, I, I think there's the sense that, um, you know, in talking about Confederate defeat, to kind of exclude, you know, the Union Army in this. And the Second Corps, you know, fights ferociously through much of the war. You know, they certainly suffer some defeats, especially around Petersburg. But they fight awfully well. They they, they do. And I, I I was also born in Detroit, and I also had the uh, experience growing up of, of being fascinated by the Civil War, but not not until moving to the South, realizing that there's a very different way of seeing it. it you well, might know it intellectually that people see things differently, but it's not until you live in a southern state that you you, you absorb. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, I was uh, running around the, the track at the, the rec center one morning, and uh, the person I was running with is a native Alabamian, and said that his sense is the Union, you know, the northern home front was, you know, kind of disengaged from the war, I guess almost in ways like, you know, some of the American public during the Vietnam War that this is, you know, just kind of off in a distant place. It's not very much disrupting our, our daily life. And if we, you know, ever get in trouble, we could just simply throw more soldiers at the, the Confederacy. So, yes, I mean, again, there, there's often, or sometimes at least, the perception that the North simply wins because of superior resources. Going right back to the, the lost cause argument that, you know, uh, you know, northern soldiers did not fight especially well. They did not fight especially bravely. They weren't especially well led. And, you know, I, again, I, I think the, the Second Corps, the, the record of the Second Corps, disputes all of those points. It, it, it does, certainly at, at Gettysburg. This topic came up at the, the Sons of Confederate Veterans meeting uh, I was at last night speaking to, and one of the people there made an interesting argument I hadn't heard before, which was the analogy to going to your 20th high school reunion, and there's there's someone there who, who was bullied by someone 20 years ago. Right. Or they say that you did something 20 years ago, and they've remembered it and cherished it every day, and you don't know who this person is. You don't even remember. <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> and I, that's why the South remembers it so more vividly than the North. Boy, I think my uh, 20th reunion is coming up. I may skip it this time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're right. I mean, and again, now, I will say, in the classroom, I, you know, I think, and you might speak to this as well, where 
I think, again, there, there's greater background information about the Civil War. Now, there are a lot of different interpretations to it, but my sense is, again, you can mention Antietam, Gettysburg, or Shiloh, and students here are going to be at least familiar with the, the basic details, whereas if you were in Cleveland or Detroit, you might not have it as much background information. And I, I think you're right, because, you know, the Union wins the war and moves forward from that, where the South is analyzing, uh, you know, why do we lose? How did this happen? So it's much more uh, in the forefront of their, their consciousness in the post-war. I think that makes makes a lot of sense. The uh, Well, the Second Corps does fight successfully at Gettysburg. They do drive off Pickett's men. Uh, and in, in the aftermath, uh, of course, Hancock is wounded and replaced by, yeah. by General Warren for a time. There, in 1864, uh, late 63 and then into 64, the army is reorganized. And uh, two things happen that, that, that threaten the survival of the Second Corps almost more than the Confederates. One is that the, arm, the, the corps of, of the army are broken up and reorganized. Right. And the other is that, that a lot of the, the, re, the three-year reenlistments from 1861 expire. Yeah. How does the Second Corps weather that? You're right. Now, that's a great point, because I always kind of assumed that during the, the Overland campaign, which is just a horrific campaign. I mean, you're, you're fighting and marching virtually every day, and casualties are just horrific. But I was always kind of under the impression that it's the replacement soldiers, so men coming into the Army in, in early 1864, uh, that they're the ones who are fighting poorly. And some of them do fight poorly, but a lot of, when you're going through the record is that soldiers who are about to muster out of the army in the summer of 1864, they don't want to put their life on the line with you only maybe, I don't know, two weeks or four weeks before they're, they're mustered out, which, you know, one might be sympathetic to, but the, the, the volunteers of 1861 who have not re-enlisted and more of the regiments that not raised in 1861 in the Second Corps don't re-enlist. They're the ones who, who fight poorly many of the times. Uh, so that, that's going to be an issue for the Second Corps because, again, they have more unreenlisted regiments than, than either of the other um, Army Corps. So they, there's sort of a downward trajectory here in the last year of the war. Yeah. You have, as you say, some of the units not fighting particularly well. They're, they're short-timers. They don't want to get killed in the last week. Right. Uh, then you have the, uh, the, the the casualties that you mentioned of the Overland Campaign, particularly at places like Cold Harbor, and then in the siege of, of Petersburg, uh, you've you've got really the one time the Second Corps is defeated in the wars. Right. Quite late they, in the war. Right. You're right. I'm showing some bruising defeats at Arim Station in August of 1864, and in, in June, so two months earlier, at Jerusalem Plank Road. Uh, they you know they don't fight especially well. So they, 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 and, and this is followed by infighting within the Corps. There, there's recriminations, there's arguments. You're right, because I mean, right, uh, battlefield defeat is a new, relatively new experience for the Second Corps, or maybe I should say embarrassing battlefield defeats. And then you start to see the fault line from the, the reorganization of the Army, where you have the Third Corps pretty much merged into um, the Second Corps. Then you get finger pointing there, and you get arguments among the high command. 
So, yeah, so I you know, battlefield defeat spurs a lot of infighting, which, which then hurts morale or sinks morale all the while. And then, of course, the, the Union wins the war uh, in 1865. And in your last chapter, you talk about the memories of, of the war and now those those grim days of 64, those, those the defeats and, and uh, recriminations seem to be forgotten and the, the men take a real pride in their service. Absolutely, and you're right. And here's where, again, because the Second Corps is in the, the thick of all, or many of the, the great battles in the East, where you continue to see that, that sense of core identity, that by identifying with their core, they've achieved greater battlefield fame than maybe their, their particular regiment. Uh, and when you're at Gettysburg, all the, the different monuments are marked with the, the trefoil symbol of the Second Corps. So you're right, they take an enormous amount of pride, as they should, in the, uh, the post-war, but especially at Gettysburg, because that, you know, that's in the public mind as the Civil War battle. And, and that does differentiate from a lot of other units that, that might not, that right. might have served in more than one corps, for example, might have been transferred. Like you mentioned, the Third Corps was broken up after Gettysburg and, and distributed among other... Uh, yeah, and you're right. I mean, you, you get other regiments disputing the, you know, the, you know, kind of saying that the Second Corps didn't win the Battle of Gettysburg on its own. And I think that closes the ranks in the Second Corps all the more that, gosh, you know, we've got to, we have to put forward our, our view of what happened at the battle. Uh, so, again, I, I think you, you very much get a, a sense of identity with the Second Corps in the, the post-war era. Well, this, you know, Larry, surprisingly, as always, we're just getting warmed up and we're just about out of time. Uh, I'll say the, the back of this, your, your book has a blurb from my colleague, uh, David Long, who right. just retired from the department here. Um, and uh, he and I talked a little bit about this. I had the opportunity to see a pre-publication manuscript, and I am uh, just very enthusiastic with the way this turned out. Uh, I, I think it does look at a topic that hasn't been uh, examined. We don't have unit histories on this scale. Uh, and I, I've really enjoyed the chance to talk to you about it today. Oh, I, I, you know, I must say I'm a huge fan of your show. It, it's such a service. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I listen every week, and you cover such a great range of topics, and you, you handle uh, the conversation so well. So you, know, you do an outstanding job. Well, well, thank you. That's uh, I, I appreciate it. Uh, even if I didn't get to keep a beautiful copy of the book, which I do, <laughs> but listeners, you'll want to go out and buy for yourselves a copy of this uh, extremely interesting book, "Defeating Lee: The History of the Second Corps, Army of the Potomac," by Larry Kreiser. Larry, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank and you, listeners. As always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 